Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Support for Small Town Secrets comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Let me ask the guys out there something. Have you ever tried to groom your Sasquatch, only to have it go horribly, horribly wrong? Well, Manscaped has you covered. That's why Manscaped redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And don't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why not put deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS, one word, at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job, and your balls will thank you. Remember, get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off for free shipping at manscaped.com with the code BIGHEADS. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, it begins the massive three-part season finale to season two as I lay the groundwork for Point Pleasant, West Virginia. All that and more on Small Town Secrets.
Every town has a secret. What is yours? Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of season 2. And as for mentioned, this is the beginning of the season finale. Uh, gonna do a big one this month. Was not in the cards. I wasn't going to do uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, this early in the show. But a lot of things kind of, at the end of this year, uh, fell into place. And just, it made a lot of sense to start doing this episode. One, just going to the Mothman Festival and doing all that and finding a bunch of great books to uh, really put together a few great episodes on this was one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. Uh, the other reason really is West uh, Point Pleasant is kind of bubbling up a little bit again. Uh, you have kind of a resurgence of the Indrid Cold uh, legend or tale or however you want to put it from um, Hellier and some of that stuff. And there's been a couple of new stories about John Keel, who researched all this and wrote the great book, The Mothman Prophecies. All of this we're going to get into in the next three episodes. And there's been, like I said, there's been a couple of new stories about some of the things that he was going through that we haven't heard before. So there's some new stuff out there to really kind of get into about about this this town. So that's why I decided to ditch what was going to be the season finale. And then I stumbled upon well, three books, now four books, to uh, put this episode together. The first one, of course, being The Mothman Prophecies, which I bought a new copy of because I don't know where my old copy went. So I, when I was down in Point Pleasant, I just grabbed a new one. Uh, the other one is the Woodrow Daringberger book, um, Visitors from Lanulos, which we will get into very heavily in the second episode. So the first episode is going to deal with just kind of the Mothman story and lay the groundwork for the other two. The second episode is going to deal with Indrid Cold and Daringberger and Lanulos and just the other kind of UFO stuff that was going on at the time. And the last book is uh, John Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries by Brent Rains. And that's just a great one because that's the one that really comes in with some new stories and stuff. And then today, I just ordered another book for uh, the second episode that will help. The great thing about the second episode books is, like, they're really short. I think both books combined together, not even 200 pages, so we'll be able to fly through that and get that second episode really quick. But... You know, I bought three of the four books at the Mothman Festival. The other one is hopefully going to be here Monday. And I thought this was the time to do it because everything is just kind of coming together. I actually just learned some great stuff today that I can't get into yet, but is also kind of tied to this and tied to some other stuff that we'll be getting into over the coming weeks so let's start off, like we always do, with a Big Heads Media promo. This one from my friends over at Deep Into History. Uh, probably a good one to check out if you're listening to this. So we're going to hit their promo and we'll come back and talk about some Mothman. 
After my first few episodes, some of my newfound fans called me a lore master, which was an honor and so epically cool. But the thing is, I desire to be known as the lore master. So, this is the tale of the rise of an epic podcast that critics say is redefining a genre. The tale of a man who decided that his calling in life was to give a future to the past. The saga of Arjun, your lore master. Come dream with me as we go deep into our stories. If you think you've been taken to a battlefield before, I assure you, you're mistaken. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and prepare to let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep. Welcome to Deep Into History, available everywhere. All right, we're back and let's get into it. Um, I think, like a lot of people, I was probably first introduced to this story through the movie, the Richard Gere classic, The Mothman Prophecies, which I actually don't think is a bad movie. Um, it takes a lot of liberties with the story. It does kind of this weird thing where it takes what happened in the 60s and kind of messes with history and makes it take place in present day. But I think it's close enough and it's a well done enough movie where it was a gateway where you watch that movie and if you're into this stuff like I am, you went to seek out the book or seek out the the true accounts of what the book was actually about and it probably just went from there. You couple that with the fact that I don't live that far away from Point Pleasant. I can get there... Uh, I think it takes about three and a half hours or three hours if you if you know how to drive. And I, you know, I, I can just go there. Like, it's kind of a nice place where if I want to go check it out, I can go on a weekend. Like, I can get up on a Saturday morning and just go and come back and go to the museum and, you know, walk around and do some stuff. Or go to the Mothman Festival, which they hold every September, which is uh, fantastic, quite frankly. And... My plan is I'm going to kind of I'm I'm doing this so maybe I can hold myself to it. People will get on me. Next year, my plan is to uh, reserve a space. I wanted to say booth, but it's outside. You don't really have a booth. You have tents, and set up a tent at the festival and just get people to come over and record live their small town secrets, their listener stories, their experiences, whatever we want to call them. Uh, for the sh for upcoming episodes next year, and you know just promote the show and maybe get some merch and have a nice little little time at the Mothman Festival next September. But that is something that's in the work works for next year that I think I can pull off. It's not not that hard. But like I said tonight, we're going to just really lay the groundwork. There's a lot to this story. You have uh, the epicenter, which is the Mothman itself. You have Point Pleasant. You have the collapse of the Silver Bridge. You have UFOs. You have Men in Black. You have just a sprinkling of animal mutilations. You have so many things that happened in the span of almost exactly 13 months from 1966 to 1967 that just ended with the bridge collapse. When that happened, everything just went... Uh, but tonight, we're going to focus on 
just the groundwork. We're just going to focus on the Mothman and the collapse of the Silver Bridge in 1967. And like I said, next episode, we're going to deal with all the UFO stuff. And episode 10, we're really going to get into John Keel and another person who is very important to the story, Mary Heyer. Um, we'll touch on them a little bit tonight, but not not a whole lot. And really get into what they had to offer, not just in Point Pleasant, but in other places. Their Men in Black stories. You know, John Keel and Mary Heyer's wacky phone calls and UFO sightings and all this great stuff. And that'll finish up the season. And we'll come back, like we always do, and do another season and do a whole bunch more of these crazy episodes. But without further ado, let's talk about the uh, Mothman himself and and Point Pleasant. Point Pleasant is a small, close-knit community just across the Ohio River from Gallipolis, Ohio. Like many little towns in West Virginia, it's quiet, and it keeps to itself. It's surrounded by woodlands and winding roads. And once these roads get you to the next small town, the cycle repeats. Also, like many towns in West Virginia, it has a history of strange happenings. It would start with the sightings of the Mothman in 1966, and end with the collapse of the Silver Bridge in 1967. Before the land on the West Virginia side of the Ohio River was called Point Pleasant, it was the site of a gruesome battle among the Shawnee and Virginia militia. Much of the area that is West Virginia seems to have been left untouched by the Native Americans, and no one really knows the reason why. They were certainly able to settle in much more inhospitable places, such as the deserts of the Southwest. However, the English had no qualms about settling on the land. For a while, all was well. The Shawnee stayed on the Ohio side of the river, and the settlers on the West Virginia side. But over time, the English started pushing further and further north into Ohio, attempting to grab more land. This strained relationships amongst the two parties. On October 10th, 1774, 500 Shawnee warriors led by Chief Cornstalk attacked the settlement. A fierce battle ensued that mostly resulted in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The Shawnee fought bravely, but after losing 200 of his men and not being able to take Fort Randolph, Chief Cornstalk retreated back across the Ohio River to Chillicothe, Ohio. Sometime later, Cornstalk and his son were lured back to the Point Pleasant area under the guise of working out a peace treaty. Instead, they were arrested. Cornstalk would be shot to death, and his son would be killed with a hammer. Before his death, Cornstalk cursed the land that would become Point Pleasant. And I just mention this because uh, the curse of Cornstalk is still a thing that resonates in the area whenever something kind of bad happens in Point Pleasant. You know, there's been some flooding and things like that that have happened uh, throughout the area over time, they always kind of bring up the curse of Cornstalk, right? Everything is that the, the curse's fault. The curse has struck again. And you'll see that kind of come in and out of this story. So that's why I wanted to include just that little bit of history. But now on to the uh, Mothman story proper. The story does not actually start in Point Pleasant but a little further southeast in the town of Clandennan, West Virginia. 
It would be on November 12, 1966, when men digging a grave would see a large humanoid creature with wings soar over their heads. And this sighting has always kind of bugged me. It is, for in a lot of places, uh, I watched a great documentary, Eyes of the Mothman, which is on Amazon Prime. If you have it, it's free to watch. And it is fantastic. There is also the uh, Small Town Monsters Mothman documentary, which is also very good. I have a t-shirt for it that I proudly wear a lot. And uh, those are both great ones to watch. But I used the uh, Eyes of the Mothman one for this episode just because it is very extensive. It's it's over two hours long. It's a very long documentary, but they really get into the cornstalk stuff and a lot of, a lot of, they get into every nook and cranny of it. But in that documentary and in, in everything, really, they talk about this being as the first sighting. One, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I don't think that this is in Keel's book. Um, and it's the only kind of quote-unquote big notable sighting that doesn't have names or anything. Every other one that we're going to talk about, there's names and there's dates and times. Except for this one. So I've always been a little eh, weary of it. But it's attributed as being the first real sighting of, of Mothman. But the next one would be much more, much more in-depth. Merle Partridge would be the next person to experience something strange. On the night of November 13th at around 11 p.m., he was home watching TV. Suddenly, his television started making high-pitched whining noises, and a thin herringbone pattern was coming across the screen. Then his dog, Bandit, ran outside and into a field. When Partridge went outside to get the dog under control, he noticed strange, rotating, and flashing red lights. He watched them until they disappeared. Bandit, however, was gone. And I do want to note, um, if you do read the Mothman Prophecies, which I suggest that you do if you haven't, he has a different name, I noticed when I was going back and rereading some stuff. So I'm not sure if that's like a typo or if Keel was changing some names back then to protect the innocent. But I just noticed that the other day when I was kind of reading through it. I was like, wait a minute, that's not, those names are different. Then the big sighting came. If the first two sightings were the sparks, and this one was the match. It would happen on the night of November 15th in what is known as the TNT area near Point Pleasant. Roger and Linda Scarberry, along with Steve and Mary Mallet, were driving through the wooded area when they saw a large human-like figure with glowing red eyes and wings on the side of the road, near the gate of the old power plant. It scared them, so they fled the area, going in excess of 100 miles per hour. The thing followed them in the town, no matter how fast they drove. It's also interesting to note that they saw a dead dog on the side of the road. Once in town, the two couples headed straight into the police station. All four gave separate reports to the police, but told pretty much the same story. They returned to the TNT area along with some officers. They found nothing. Even the dog carcass was missing. However, their police radios started giving off a high-pitched noise pretty much like the one that started coming out of Merle Parcher's TV a couple of nights before. Uh, before we go much further, I want to talk about the TNT area. The land is now known as the McClintock Wildlife Area and was once used by the U.S. government. 
Uh, its official name was the West Virginia Ordnance Works. And during World War II, Mason County donated 8,655 acres over to the government for mostly the manufacture and storage of dynamite and other chemicals and explosives. For around four years, the area operated as a small city with factories and housing. There's probably a little, you know, a little store, all that stuff. The most interesting of the buildings that were constructed in the TNT area were known as igloos. These concrete, airtight buildings were made to resemble small hills. Grass grew on top of them to camouflage them from aircraft flying overhead. It would be these igloos that they would store the TNT in. After the war, much of the explosive manufacturing would up and leave. The power plant remained as an eerie remnant left over. Also left over were the igloos, which, after the war, were loaned out to various companies for storage, and some still are to this day. Despite the obvious dangers such a place posed, it would become quite the location for teenagers to go and hang out or party. After the war, the land was given back to the county, and in 1951, it was redubbed the McClintock Wildlife Management Area, and became a popular place to fish and hunt. In the 1980s, it was discovered that chemicals from the manufacture of TNT had seeped into much of the ground and the water in the wildlife area. When red water was seen in Pond 13, it triggered an EPA cleanup. Who knows what polluted the site? Not only did you have chemicals from the dynamite, but also from whatever was being stored by the many other companies that had leased storage there. The match that was the Scarberry Mallet encounter quickly lighted a wildfire. Soon, hundreds of reporters, hunters, and anyone who wanted to see the Mothman, which had gotten its name from the popular Batman TV series at the time, would be clogging the wildlife area looking for any trace. And it wouldn't take long for many to actually see the Mothman creature. Many, like the sighting Eddie Atkins would have on December 4, 1966. Atkins and some friends were out on an airfield at the Gallipolis Airport, when they saw a human-like creature with a large wingspan flying above the Ohio River. The men estimated its altitude to be 300 feet and moving at maybe 70 miles an hour. One of them decided to hop in his plane and take some pictures, but by the time he got there, the thing had vanished from the air. A few days before the encounter at the Gallipolis Airport, Connie Jo Carpenter would have her own terrifying experience with the Mothman. On the 27th of December, she was driving home to New Haven, West Virginia from church when she saw what looked like a man in gray standing on the grounds of a deserted Mason County golf course. It proceeded to unfurl its wings and shoot straight up into the air without flapping them. It then came down and swooped right at her windshield. Connie veered and missed the thing. Scared out of her mind, she raced home and locked herself in her bedroom. Her fiancé, Keith, said she just kept repeating, those eyes, those eyes. Connie, like many others who would actually see Mothman, would contract conjunctivitis. Soon, people were not only reporting Mothman sightings, but UFO after UFO report would pour right in alongside the Mothman encounters. Enter Mary Heyer. Mary was a reporter for the Athens Messenger of Athens, Ohio. She had a satellite office across the street from the county courthouse in Point Pleasant. She would take it upon herself to compile and report on these many Mothman and UFO sightings. In fact, 
her and John Keel would end up working closely together to chronicle the Mothman tale. John Keel was a noted Fortean researcher and writer. When not writing episodes of Get Smart, Lost in Space, and The Monkeys, he was out reporting and searching for tales of the strange all over the country. He would find his way into Point Pleasant on December 9th of 67. He first stopped by the county courthouse and was told by a deputy to go to the nearby McDaniel house. And I think uh, in the book it mentions that the McDaniels were kind of amateur researchers themselves. That's why he was uh, directed there. There he met the Scarberries, the Mallets, along with Keith and Connie, her eyes still swollen, as well as Connie's aunt, Mary Heyer. He interviewed all of them separately and took down their stories. Then they all went to the TNT area to have a look. They hopped the fence by a munitions depot where Keel, Keith, and Connie would enter while the rest would wait outside. Inside, the trio didn't find much, but as they looked around, Connie would scream, Those eyes! He's here! Connie became hysterical, and John and Keith rushed her outside. And this is how it would go on for the next year or so. Mary Heyer would report the sightings, and Keel would stop by West Virginia every so often to investigate and get updates. All the while, they would be plagued by encounters with strange people such as men in black. They would also get odd phone calls and hear odd noises, such as high-pitched whining, on the phone. They even saw a few UFOs themselves. This cycle would repeat for almost a year until an event would take place that would bring it all come to a crashing stop. And I've, I've distilled it down to kind of just the essence of the Mothman encounters. There, I think there were, I mean, there were hundreds of reports, you know, most of them probably bogus, but there are some good ones out there. Um, I highly suggest if you have never read the, the Mothman Prophecies, uh, you should. You should grab it. I will say this about the book. If you're looking for a nice kind of Trident-to timeline, you're not going to find it in that book because everything is there, but the problem with with the story is that if he just wrote about what happened in West Virginia, it wouldn't be the complete book. Like, he hops around. It's not just about Point Pleasant. It's about everything that he was doing and experiencing in those 13 months. So he talks about a lot of other places, and he talks about a lot of other encounters and sightings. So you kind of have to go through, if you want the story, you got to go and read it through and pick it out like I did. But, you know, it, it to me it is almost like the modern bible of the paranormal and i think anyone that's interested in this stuff should probably have a copy of it on their shelves like i said i i have at least one copy that i know of i bet if i go digging the one that i can't find is out in the garage somewhere and i i even have it on audiobook too but i do want to say one thing so as i was doing that i stopped to redo a part which i do a lot you never hear but i do it all the time and I did hear, it was just kind of weird because I'm talking about like all these weird whining noises coming over phones and stuff. But as I was going back to kind of re-record a piece of this, you know, I just, I wasn't talking. There was just some silence in my headphones. And I did just hear like a weird kind of high-pitched whine. It sounded like someone whistling in my headphones. It wasn't, it was high-pitched, but it wasn't loud. And I've recorded, I don't know how many hours of this show. And I've done another show before this. And I have never 
and I pretty much have the same equipment, like the same headphones, the same mic, everything. And I have never heard uh, such a noise ever. And my phone is nowhere near me. So it wasn't like sometimes you get that weird interference from your phone over stuff like this because it's sending and receiving data. It wasn't that because that thing's upstairs. Like it's far enough away where it's not going to interfere. Just thought I'd point that out. But uh, we're going to do a boom and uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the Silver Bridge. So I'm going to jump to the end of the story and then we're going to the next two episodes. We're going to really go back and grab, like I said, everything in between. And we're going to talk about the collapse of the famed Silver Bridge. And I want to just say, like, a lot of people didn't know what to make of Mothman. He wasn't an alien. Well, maybe he was. He wasn't, you know, was he just a mutated crane? I don't know, at the end of the very end of the episode, very end of the episode, very end of the season, at the end of the final episode, I'll go back and kind of get into some explanations about what he might have been. But a lot of it kind of came back to that he was either a harbinger of destruction or maybe just a sign of change or maybe some sort of angel or demon. But it all kind of came together with the event I'm going to talk about uh, right now. But was the Mothman a harbinger of death or destruction? That remains to be seen and is still widely discussed. However, on December 15, 1967, a disaster would befall Point Pleasant, and afterwards, the Mothman would seem to fade away, or perhaps just forgotten in the aftermath. The Silver Bridge was constructed in 1928. The 2,235-foot-long suspension bridge was built by the American Bridge Company and designed by the J.E. Grainer Company. The bridge was known as an I-bar suspension bridge, which in 1938 had been in use for about 100 years or so, that, that type of bridge. Most I-bars used many redundant beams to create the strength and support that it needed. The silver bridge was different. It had far less beams but used a higher tensile strength. This supposedly resulted in a more efficient design, but retained the same strength. However, since the bridge had no redundant beams like other I-bar bridges, one damaged beam could result in total failure of the structure. When the bridge opened on May 30, 1928, it was hailed as the gateway to the south. Many residents in the Point Pleasant and Gallipolis, Ohio area were happy to have it. It made commuting much easier between the two towns. The bridge did, however, gain a reputation for being quite shaky. Salesman Ben Cedar was quoted as saying, I was worried about that bridge every time I crossed over. If you got stuck in the middle of that bridge, it would wave back and forth, back and forth. Even so, the bridge would serve the surrounding communities for 39 years, until the 15th of December of 67, when it would collapse into the snowy cold waters of the Great Ohio River. That night, many Christmas shoppers were coming back to West Virginia after taking advantage of Ohio's cheaper sales tax. Also, there was no, uh, in Ohio, there's no sales tax on food, and in West Virginia, at least at the time, there was. You had 
people would go just across the river and uh, get that cheaper price because the sales tax was a little bit cheaper. And uh, there was also no sales tax on food. So traffic was backed up on both the highway and the Silver Bridge. And on that night, Charlene Wood would drive up to the bridge in slow 15 mile an hour traffic. She felt the bridge start to shimmy and shake. And it must have been more than normal because despite the traffic behind her, she backed up off the bridge. She was four feet from the beginning of the Silver Bridge when in about a minute, it collapsed right in front of her. She watched as one side gave way, sending 31 vehicles into the icy cold water. Howard Boggs was on the bridge when it failed. He was in the car with his 17-month-old baby and Marjorie, his wife. Howard was pulled from the water by a rescue boat. He told the crew that had rescued him, I just hope that God, Marjorie and the kid, got out okay. Their bodies would be found six weeks later, still in the car. 31 vehicles, 64 people, 44 degree water, 46 dead, 18 survivors. It would be, and still is, the deadliest bridge failure in U.S. history. Like many engineering disasters, it was a combination of factors that led to the collapse. The design, as mentioned earlier, was not as reliable as first thought. The bridge had been poorly maintained in the later years. Very early on, it was checked, you know, every couple of few years when they did maintenance or they updated it. But I think in later years, it, it had just kind of fallen off a little bit. Also in its later life, it was carrying much heavier loads than it was originally designed to take on. All of these factors combined with the heavy holiday traffic cause a defect in I-bar 330. A stress crack of 0.1 inches, 2.5 millimeters deep, is all it took. The crack grew over the years until it could not take any more. The tragedy would result in the forming of the National Bridge Inspection Standards, which would require all 20-foot-plus spans to be checked every year, a practice that we still employ today. The Silver Memorial Bridge would be erected on December 15, 1969. There is also a memorial to the 46 dead and the original Silver Bridge. There are some who claim to have seen the Mothman perched like a gargoyle on the bridge towers that night, and others say the creature caused the collapse. However, many say that he was just a harbinger, a thing that came to somehow warn the people of Point Pleasant of something horrible to come. Whichever the case, after the collapse, the Mothman seemed to have gone, and there were no more reports and strangeness around Point Pleasant. It all sort of died off. So was it, did he come to somehow warn people or cause this or what have you, and then he was gone? Or did the townspeople just kind of have something more serious on their hands than, uh, than these silly UFO reports and Mothman sightings? It, you know, it's it's hard to say. I will say, this is something I didn't add in my notes, but I remember from Eyes of the Mothman, the documentary. A lot of people, they interview a lot of people that were uh, around when the bridge collapsed that were both, you know, kids and adults at the time. And a lot of them talk about hearing a very loud, almost sonic boom coming from under the water under the bridge when it collapsed. So I don't know what that's all about. I'm not sure what kind of sound... Uh, an eye bar uh, breaking 
failing would make, but I don't think it would be like Sonic Boom levels of of uh, volume. So that was an interesting point. So many people said that in that documentary. They just kind of smash cut, I don't know, half a dozen people saying they heard that sound when it happened. But that really is, that's the nitty gritty of the Mothman encounters. And that's what this episode was for, was for the nitty gritty. So we're going to take a little musical break and we're going to come back with, of course, the local headlines. And welcome back. Tonight's local headlines, uh, 
run the gambit. We've got a Bigfoot story. We've got a story about goblins. Uh, not not the goblins you think it's going to be. And um, a story about some UFOs. So let's get right into it. The first one is from Coast to Coast AM by Tim Banal. And I've lost the headline. Where did the headline go? Oh, yes. Watch. Bigfoot charges at boy. An odd video circulating online reportedly shows a Bigfoot lunging at a terrified boy. But not everyone is convinced that the footage is genuine. The weird scene was recorded by an unnamed young man who claims that he spotted a Sasquatch figure near his school a few weeks prior and decided to see if he could locate the creature. The footage shows the youngster and friend walking through some woods in the dark when they hear some unexplained noises in the distance. Dude, what is that? asked the frightened boy, and his friend quick quickly replies, I don't know. Their fears were soon realized when some kind of bipedal creature comes running towards them. The kids promptly flee the area, screaming and crying out for help before the video comes to an end. The boy behind the possible Bigfoot video later uploaded it to YouTube and explained that the creature did not chase after them and instead just ran for a second and stopped and went back into the bushes. Although the boy insists that the incident really took place and some Bigfoot enthusiasts believe that the video does show the creature chasing after him, the footage has drawn quite a fair share of skepticism. Specifically, people point to the fact that one can only barely glimpse of the beast while it very well could be someone in a costume rather than the famed cryptid. With that in mind, what's your take on the odd video? So um, I will link to this story which has the video right on there. It's not really long, but it does say 100% real in uh, parentheses, so that's always, you know, a good sign. But it's it's kind of scary. It's a pretty scary, terrifying video for as short as it is. But I'll let you take a look at it and see what you think about that one. This other one is actually very fun. This one is from the Manaka Post. Manaka Post? Uh, written by Liberty... Du Dubay, I want to say. And it is uh, suspected goblins kill 10 family members. A Nyanga family is suffering incessant torment from suspected goblins that have killed more than 10 family members, prompting some members to seek spiritual healing and protection. Troubled family members last week approached a local prophet who allegedly exposed the culprit behind their torment. The beleaguered Nevzenga family camped out at the Madzibaba Shepherd Nariza's shrine in Hobhouse. And I'm sure I butchered everything in that in that sentence. The prophet who leads the church allegedly retrieved suspected witchcraft paraphernalia comp comprising of a creepy goblin-like lance, a knobberry tied with henya tail, and a clay pot filled with blood. The paraphernalia allegedly belonged to one of the family members, the name withheld. Family members who spoke to the Manica Post after the cleansing rituals in Nyanga confessed that confessed being haunted with mysterious deaths, among other unexplained calamities. Family members have been dying mysteriously until we established that there was witchcraft in the family. We could not figure out exactly who was behind the death of about ten family members, and then engaged... Uh, Madzibia Nariza, who exposed the culprit. 
I once I can I once confronted him before. I had weird dreams in which he would be trying to stab me. We are happy that Nazira, that Nazira got to the bottom of the mystery and fished out the culprit. He exposed him. What shocked us most is that inside one of the clay pots was paper filled with a list of people that had died mysteriously and earmarked to die. We hope the cleansing rituals will eradicate our problems, said Mr. Francis Nazinga. Uh, Nazira, who specializes in exercising evil spirits and settling spiritual battles in families, said more deaths were on the family's way had they been delayed seeking out his services. People who appeared on the list in the clay pot were bound to die in the near future. I prayed first and summoned the goblins to expose themselves. The family will not be haunted again, he said. And yeah, there's a lot of names in that. But, I mean, killer goblins, you have to do that story even if you have to stumble through the names. And our last story comes from Weak and Weird, written by none other than Greg Newkirk himself. And this is Lightning Reveals Hidden UFO in Incredible Footage from Guadalajara, Mexico. Mexico has always been home to some strange aerial sightings, but one piece of footage from Guadalajara is one of the most compelling pieces of UFO evidence to ever come from south of the border. This shaky, handheld footage doesn't just show mysterious balls of light floating in the sky. Thanks to a fortuitous lightning strike, the entire craft is illuminated for a brief moment, giving us a rare glimpse of the unidentified flying objects hovering above us. The stunning footage was captured in 2012 and contains, to impress both amateur sky watchers and serious ufologists alike, thanks to its split-second look at a massive craft in the Mexican sky. Normally, it might be easy to pass off the strange orbs as a collection of street lamps in a distant parking lot, but a view of the craft blows that argument out of the water. Take a closer look at the illuminated frames below, and then if you go to the website, there are plenty of great stills and, of course, the YouTube video itself. One viewer of the video claims that he saw the UFO himself that night. The footage was captured, and he says it looked as if the craft was hidden inside a special cloud that was releasing the lights. I saw this UFO, he wrote on YouTube. It was huge, the size of a whole mountain. The impressive thing is that it was hidden in a special cloud that seemed to be made artificially as if it was diffusing a soft, dense haze. Also, take note of these rays that are coordinated with the UFO lights. Seeing it live, it looked like the cloud was charging them or producing them. It was confusing, but they had some connection. I witnessed it and the craft rather looked like a mothership due to its size. In a world where CGI hoaxes have become the norm on YouTube, the Guadalajara clip remains one of the most intriguing UFO videos on the internet. And that's a that's an older news story. It actually came out in 2016, but I just really dug the images and the video and stuff, so I wanted to get it on get it on the show and there you go. That, have, that has been this episode's uh, local headlines. So we're going to finish it out with some uh, listener stories. And we'll finish out this episode. In 2017... 
paranormal investigators Greg and Dana Newkirk, Carl Pfeiffer, and Connor Randall trekked into the heart of Appalachian coal country, Hellier, Kentucky, in search of a man who claimed that small alien creatures were emerging from a long-abandoned mine shaft on his rural property. What they uncovered was more than a case of little green men. It was a far-reaching mystery with huge implications for the reality of paranormal phenomena. Planet Weird's cinematic documentary series, Hellier, returns with 10 highly anticipated new episodes poised to change the way paranormal television is experienced. Following a search for strange creatures in Hellier, a team of paranormal investigators are contacted by a mysterious figure with new information about extraterrestrial contact in rural Kentucky. What begins as a fresh lead soon descends into an Appalachian conspiracy involving murder, occult rituals, and an ancient intelligence, forcing the team to question the true nature of the phenomena. All episodes of Hellier premiere exclusively on Amazon Prime on Friday, November 29th at 12.01 a.m. and free of charge on YouTube two weeks later on Friday, December 13th. Check out hellier.tv for episode descriptions, downloads, detailed series information, behind-the-scenes looks, and special features. Follow at WeirdHQ and hashtag Hellier for more exclusive content and updates. Tonight, we've got two like we normally do. The first one's from Al Cooley from a Ghost in the Valley podcast. And uh, he sent in a, a UFO story from Liberty Township, Ohio. And actually, go check out Ghost in the Valley podcast because he said he did a three-part episode on this encounter. But I wanted to like throw a shout-out to him. Everyone go listen to the episode. And also, when he sent me this and I started looking at it, I remember this. I remember seeing this. I found some YouTube videos that basically take the segment off of whatever, you know, one of those sci-fi specials or something about this. And I remember seeing that. So I remember this. And I actually found a nice little article about it, once again, from Week and Weird. So I'm just going to go through the article here because it sums up pretty nicely. And this is Chasing Aliens, the Trumbull County Disturbance by Ken Summers. Summers. It was just another night in Northeast Ohio until the calls came in about lights in the sky. Roy Ann Rudolph was fielding the usual 911 calls at the dispatch office for Liberty Township Police on the night of December 14, 1994, when she received a couple of strange calls. People were seeing something hovering in the sky over a field just off Sampson Drive, north of Youngstown, Ohio. After the fourth or fifth call came through around midnight, she started to wonder if these people were serious or just the usual drunk dialers. In fact, she had a difficult time taking it seriously. Was there a UFO in her neck of the woods? It was a UFO. What the hell would it be coming to Liberty for? If it was a UFO, I'm sorry. She joked over the radio. There's no intelligent life in Liberty. Eager to quiet the few people who phoned the police in panic, Rudolph called Sergeant Toby Malero to drive over there, poke around, and come back with a logical explanation. What followed was one of the strangest events in the history of Liberty. Malero arrived on Samson Drive and saw the light in question. He radioed back that he was going to get a better look at it. Suddenly, and without explanation, his patrol car went dead. Even the CB radio was out, which caused a bit of panic at dispatch. At the moment, 
the object in the sky shine a blinding light down on his vehicle. Malero emerged from his cruiser and watched the silent craft above him. After a short time, the unknown object moved away from his car, came back to life, and after collecting his thoughts, he phoned Rudolph to explain what he saw. It was an immense circular craft, about the size of a football field, with an intense bright light at the center. He had to shield his eyes with his hand to get a decent look at it. There were other colors visible as well. Malero saw either blue or green. Other colors mentioned blue or purple. The bright light the officer witnessed may have been what terrified residents described as the tail flame of a jet. At that point, Sergeant Malero decided to follow the craft and not let it get out of sight. He told Rudolph back at dispatch where it was headed as it became more and more of a challenge to follow its route. Soon officers from nearby townships of Brookfield, Hubbard, and Hartford were calling in with sightings. Lieutenant James Baker of Brookfield Township Police grabbed a pair of binoculars and climbed a radio tower for a better look. He saw not one, but three structures, flashing red, blue, green, and yellow light. In total, approximately 14 police and sheriffs in Trumbull County saw the crafts that night. And some did more than that. They went after it. Malero and several other officers from neighboring townships took chase. They followed the lights in the sky for several hours and headed east towards the Pennsylvania border. Dispatcher Royan Rudolph, not wanting to miss out, was picked up by an officer on his way to State Route 82 to head out in pursuit. Shortly after the band of officers crossing the Pennsylvania, the craft took off at incredible speed and vanished out of sight. What was it? Could it have been an aircraft? Rudolph called the FAA not long after the sightings began to find any plausible explanation. She was told there, were no, there was no object on radar in her area. NASA was also contacted after the incident, but again, there was no explanation. It's as if these people were seen, it's as if as what these people were seen wasn't actually there. Trumbull County is home to two military installations, the Ravina Arsenal, then called the Ravina Training and Logistics Site for the Ohio Army National Guard, and Youngstown Air Reserve Station, and seeing military aircraft is quite common even today. Rumors of the top-secret military aircraft from the Youngstown Station still circulate. Other people claim it was just a meteor or a star, but would that many police officers really be foolish enough to chase a shooting star for miles? Whatever lit up Holmes on Samson Drive that night is still a mystery. For fear of sounding insane, most of the people involved that night dismiss it and avoid the subject. Somehow, the incident known by some as the Trumbull County Disturbance missed the local newspapers entirely and wasn't brought to light until two years later. But this isn't the only incident of unknown aircraft in the region. More odd lights were reported shortly before the December 14th signing. Another object was witnessed in the skies over Ravina in 1966. Some 211 reports from across the state were reported the MUFON in the past six years alone. This should be no surprise to anyone since Ohio is home to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where some ufologists insist that alien bodies from the Roswell crash were sent for examination and storage. And our last story is from the Dem Fancy Dinosaurs podcast, and this is the town of Patterson Lakes, and this is in Australia. So, long story short, about 10 years ago, our friend used to be possessed at parties. Like after everyone had gone to sleep, he would speak in whispers and push heavy stuff around. We all figured he was drunk and passed out and being weird. Then, a couple of months later, he started to get audible and stand up and start referring himself as Belial. To which we all laughed. 
he got angry and almost strangled one of my mates. As a joke, my friend said he would sell his soul for him to leave. He then grabbed his head tightly for a good minute and fell to the floor. Each time our possessed friend would wake up not knowing. Then came the final time. We were all at my place and he fell asleep and started up with, de with the demonic stuff. This time it was damaging. Almost knocked me out, letting out bellering cries and howls. We got so freaked out we called our Christian friend because, I don't know, what do you do? Like seriously, we thought he was messing around, so we hit him, like in the balls and everything. And guys, you know how much that hurts, but nothing. After this ordeal, it never happened again. Uh, Kyle and I shared a cigarette as the sun rose. We had survived our first encounter with the unknown. So, two podcasting friends, go check out Ghost in the Valley. Go check out the Dim Fancy Dinosaurs podcast. And that will be our listener stories for uh, this episode. And that is it. The first episode of uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the books. Stay tuned. I think next next week is going to be really great. I have something planned. We just got to get schedules together for hopefully a special guest. But we're really going to get into some strange UFO stuff next episode with the tale of Woodrow Derenberger and Ingrid Cold, Ingrid Cold, I am sorry, and just some of the other, like big, like I said, big UFO stories that also happened around the area at the time. And this episode's been interesting. Like I said, I had that kind of weird, whistly, whiny noise come through the headphones, and I've also had uh, um, Logic Pro crash on me like three times, which never happens. I mean, I could chalk that up to Logic Pro just recently updated, and... I've updated uh, Mac OS, so maybe there's some bugginess going on between that. But it's just weird that you know a lot of a lot of the Mothman stuff is oh you get interference from electronics and stuff, and then I get some weird interference stuff. But like I said, it's probably just from updates and maybe a bug or something weird that has popped up since then. But that has been this episode. Once again, uh, if you have a small town secret, a listener story, you would want to share. Uh, you can get it to me in a lot of ways. The best place is to just check out the website, sdscast.com. At the bottom of that main page, there's a form, an email form. You can fill it out, and it'll get to me. And that's the easiest way for me to get it and uh, process it and get it on the show. You can also get at me on social media. Uh, I'm most, I am most active on Twitter, and that is at sdscast. Facebook is also at sdscast. And Instagram, that damn Instagram is at stscast.gram. Uh, those are, you know, there's also a subreddit. Uh, uh, what is it? STS listener stories. There's a subreddit there. There's a link for it on the main, on the website at the bottom of the page. I've got all the links to everything on the bottom of every page, really. Also on the website is uh, ways to support the show like merch, the PayPal donation, you can find links to sources that I've used for this episode and every episode, as well as pictures also on the website. They'll end up on social media, too. The pictures usually on Instagram. But that has been this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. And uh, if you get a chance, please uh, write a review, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, and tell a friend, you know, get on social media, say how you like the show. 
you know, if every person that listens got one other person to listen, well, then it would double. You know, listenership would double and we would grow even more. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great couple of weeks. I'll be back with more juiciness from Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Until then, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours? What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.